0: Y'all can have a seat. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We will be in Hebrews 9 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, I will pray for us, and we'll just go ahead and dig right in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day, and we do want more of you That is what we want in our lives, and I pray for us, God, that we would know that we are not here simply to assemble a a, a systematic or knowledge about you, but to appropriate the reality of who you are in our lives and what we have because of you. It is not enough that we know things about you. It's not enough that we could read a baseball card uh, about you, Lord God, or have facts or ideas, but that we rejoice over those facts and the salvation you've worked in our lives and the life you have given us. And so I pray today that this would not just be about knowing things, but knowing you, and when we know you, we would rejoice over you, God. I pray for us, God. I pray it seems that the pillar of smoke is moving us to the Finney Center. I ask your blessing on that. I pray you would save people because of that. I pray you'd make disciples because of that. But I pray in that that we would know that's not our salvation, that you are our salvation and you are our hope, uh, and that that is just a building you've given us to worship you in. So I pray you'd even bless that endeavor to be for your glory and for our joy in you. Jesus, we love you, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, We have been uh, tracking our way through the book uh, and like a snowball, it's beginning to roll and we're dealing with more and more text as we go as he continues to kind of circle back around some ideas we've hit again and again. Uh, But today, we're specifically focusing on this idea of redemption and redemption is an interesting idea because uh, in America, I think we know the word, we've heard the word, and we even like the word and it kind of gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling inside the idea of redemption, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, I was listening, I was driving, In North Seattle, in one of my minivans, I have two minivans in my possession right now, uh, which means I'm officially a grown-up. When you have minivans in the plural, you are in a category all of your own. I was driving in a minivan, listening to the boss, thinking about the sermon. That's Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I was listening to the boss in my minivan, feeling pretty New Jersey at the moment. I don't know what I was feeling. I'm driving, and I'm listening to uh, Dancing in the Dark, and he says this phrase, I want to change my hair, my clothes, my face. And I thought that was a really brutally honest little line. I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face, and in it acknowledge that need of just being in a spot where you just feel like you need to get out of where you are, where where you are is not the right place to be, and you want to change anything that you can to not be there anymore. And I think that this is a pervasive narrative in our country. We live in America where people come for redemption, Many people come to America because, America because whatever they're in, you know, this might be your family's story, right? Whatever you were in was worse than whatever you think you're going to get when you get here. And then you're going to get redeemed. And, and then it's going to fix it if you could just get here. I, I know that was my family story. And, I, and I'm actually for that story. I'm not opposed to people coming and getting a better deal or, or, or having their lives changed. But the reality is that we have this, this thing of redemption built into even just our language. Like, that guy really redeemed himself, Uh, That language that really just says, that guy really fixed his problems. Last week he was a blockhead, but he fixed what he did, and now he's not such a blockhead. right? And the narrative is really about us redeeming ourselves. We live in this pervasive place where the story is about you making good on your life. You're in a bad spot. You getting yourself out of it. But there's a very, very, very huge problem with that. And, and I think the boss nails it when we talk about, I want to change my hair, my clothes, and my face. But the reality is in 2014, you can change your hair, your clothes, your face. You can change all of that. You can completely reinvent yourself. You can move. You can, you can reinvent yourself online. You can do all of these things. You can present a, a certain face or a certain idea about who you are. But at the end of the day, uh, it's just sort of the scenery changing on the blue screen. And you can change it all, and you're just still right there, right? Uh, A civil rights leader once rightly said in the 60s uh, of the situation that African Americans were in, he said, uh, they're asking us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps when we're not even wearing any shoes. And this is, in fact, the Bible's diagnosis of about where we're at. That you and I are in need when we're being honest. Not, not when we're feeling really good about going into the hot topic and coming out in your new ska look and you've got your new thing and you feel good. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, when two weeks later, you're still you and things aren't fixed and they're not changed. And no amount of money or friends or success or fame fixes the problem. Famous people are very good at pointing this out to us. Right? No one beats the American dream. But the Bible is going to diagnose that. Yeah, we are like people barefoot. We can't even pull ourselves out of it. But the Bible doesn't just stop there. The Bible shows us something amazing. And it's not just that there is a need for redemption, but there is redemption. And it's not just based on you, but there is a redeemer and his name is Jesus. And this is the power of the gospel that we cannot save ourselves. But God in our weakness comes down to save us from ourselves, to redeem us, to make us new, to change us not on the outside, but on the inside out. And we're in such dire need that it had to be from the outside, inside, out, and he had to come uh, and save us. And as we look again at these Old Testament themes, uh, that deep-abiding reality that, that Jesus Christ, by His blood, changes us at the core. He doesn't just take us on a shopping spree, but changes who we are, washes us clean and makes us new is not just something to have some facts to tick off. right? I love the creeds. But it's not just that we can tick off, yes, there's a trinity, yes, Jesus was fully God, fully human, tick, tick, tick. But as you look at that and you realize the God of the universe who made everything entered into human history to die to give you life. And that's not just information to have, but things to be rejoiced in. To, to motivate your whole life to change Everything and, and, and Hebrews here isn't actually, though he's getting complicated, and he's talking about some stuff that maybe you've never even read in the Bible before. We're going to talk about a stick that makes almonds come out of it, and it's going to be crazy. And you might look at that and go, I've never read number 17. The whole point here is not that he's giving us a lecture on the Old Testament, but in many ways, he's reminding them or helping them to understand as Christians what they already have in Jesus. And that's my aim today, that you would understand what you have in Jesus if you're a Christian, which, by the way, is a great and powerful evangelistic reality. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know what we have because God came for his glory and our joy to save us from ourselves in the person of Jesus. So let's go ahead and dig in here in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations. He's talking about the Old Testament, the the Old Testament ways uh, that things went down. Uh, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And now he's going to begin to tell us about this. And one of the things he's been doing is he's been trying to help us see uh, that God has changed things in Jesus, that this old stuff's over, the new stuff is here, but all of God's movement is progressing towards something. And it's ultimately progressing towards the redemption of his people, the saving of a people, not because they deserve it, but because he's good and gracious and wonderful and holy and right and he's kind and he's done it. And ultimately, progressing towards the redemption of all of creation, and he's moving it along. And so he's talking about this progression here. So now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which uh, which there were a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. And he's just describing stuff that you would even find uh, in Numbers and Leviticus that's just described. Uh, but he's describing how how it all works out in this thing called the tabernacle, where God's. And you have to remember. That when the tabernacle gets put together, God manifests his presence there, a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. That God manifests himself with his people in the tabernacle. We're not just talking about a tent you buy at Big Five. We're talking about a place where God chose to dwell in in a manifest way with his people. It is called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place, which we've actually talked about a lot, and Hebrews has talked about a lot, but that's where, and he's going to tell us this in a second, so I'll just read it, and I'll let him tell you. Uh, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. Uh, this is number 17. There's a big argument, and God says, Okay, get somebody from all the tribes to write their name on their sticks and put them in front of the ark, and I'll show you who's my guy. And Levi's stick buds and grows almonds on it. And so Moses says, how about we leave that stick right there? And, and they had it for a long time until it got disappeared. But that is another story. And Aaron's uh, staff budded and grew almonds. doesn't mention that, but it did. And the, ta- uh, the tablets of the covenant, that's where the Ten Commandments are written. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. That's where that pillar of smoke would rest. Now, here's the, here's the verse that I think is really interesting for us. He says, Here this. Of these things, we can now not speak in detail, which he kind of just did. But, but why would he say that? Why would he stop and say, okay, cool, let's move on? Well, well one, he's probably telling them information they already have available to them in, in the Bible, uh, in the first 78% in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. These are all synonyms. Um, but the point of this is not that he, he's not trying to debate them. And he's not trying to show them how smart they are. Or how smart he is, pardon me. Uh, He's not trying to just transfer information. The point of Hebrews is that they would see who Jesus is and that they would see that there is a redeemer and his name is Jesus. And they would not simply just sit and bank on information. But they would understand who he is. They would know him and they would love him and they would rejoice in him. That That the reality of Jesus would flavor every nuance and facet of their lives, and and that it would color absolutely everything. And this is what he wants for you. This is the Christian life that is available to you. This isn't just pie in the sky. That's nice for the apostles. That's nice for Moses. That's nice for the. It's for you. It's for you. Let's keep going. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. So this is that holy of holies, and we've kind of talked about it extensively already because he keeps coming back to this idea, comes back to this idea that once upon a time, the way that God administrated his relationship to people, only one guy once a year got to go into the manifest presence of God, but that if you are a Christian, through his blood and through the curtain that is his flesh, you get to go all the time, full access to God, always because of Jesus. So he's trying to show them, hey, by the way, that was, this is, by the way, a better arrangement than the other one. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, And for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And then he says an interesting phrase, which is symbolic for the present age. And if you are in an ESV, there's going to be a little tiny, maybe a one there, a note. And it will give another way you could translate these Greek words. And it is Uh, For the age then present, which is actually the better way to understand what he's saying. And and so the age then present. So this is what it means. Um, Back up in eight. By then the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as they're doing the old covenant thing, as long as they're living the Old Testament lifestyle, There's this future thing that is coming. And he keeps talking about this in Hebrews as you read it. So that they would understand, that you'd understand that the people, the saints of old, were waiting for what the Old Testament was promising. And that's that somebody was going to come and fix what human beings broke. God made everything good. We broke it. He promised someone to come and fix it. Which always reminds us that Jesus is in the business of fixing broken things. Jesus is in the business of taking dead things and making them live things. Uh, Jesus is in the business of taking tears and wiping them from eyes. Jesus is in the business of taking the things that we mess up and somehow even using those things when we're His, redeeming them, using our screw-ups for His glory and for our joy, and works them out for good. I and mean, that's one of the most profound promises in the Bible that he's working out all things for good for those who love him. And, and I'll be frank, there are times when those all things are a little hard to swallow, right? And, and I don't think the Bible means that we just walk, he's trying to have us walk around with sort of like a candy-coated veneer uh, uh, because, you know, he's working out this horrific, horrible thing that's raining down on right, me right now for his glory. So here's my smile and here we go. But that in that moment, we can take that to the bank. That he is working it all out for good. And he will wipe every tear from every eye. And yo, no, you're not God. And you don't have God's uh, vantage point on it. But he's on the move. Which is then symbolic, uh, yet open as long as the first section is still saying. Which is symbolic for the present age. Meaning the age that was present then. Where they're at. They were waiting for more because all those things are pointing to something more. And he'll kind of begin to unpack that for us. Verse 8. According to this, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until... The time of reformation. The old covenant sat waiting for the new covenant. And the thing that was wrong with the, with the old covenant was us, because God said, "I'm your God, and you're my people. That's how you walk in my ways." And we say, "Yeah, we'll do that. That's great." Or the people of God, I should say, say that. Yeah, that, that's great. And then 15 minutes later, they're like, hey, that idol over there is pretty golden, cool. That's a shiny thing. Who was that God guy again? That's neat. Those. That was- those Canaanites, they got, they got something going on over there. We quickly miss it. We quickly move on. We quickly transition. Now, this is one of the challenges of our life being sanctified. There's two parts of sanctification. There's dying to our sin and there's living to Jesus. And so we die to our sin and we live to Jesus and then we walk out the street and someone cuts us off and we forget about praying for our enemies and loving those who persecute us flip them the bird or whatever we do there right it slips from our fingers really quickly now what he's saying here is that old thing it just dealt with the outside you see this in Ezekiel 36 you see this elsewhere that the promise is yeah there's something that's going to deal with the outside stuff but there's a time coming when I'm going to deal with the inside stuff that, that I'm going to deal with the inside stuff and, and I think this is true for us now you know what I mean? I think, though you might not be living in an old covenant lifestyle, um, human beings, whether you believe in God or not, are pretty good at, at doing penance, at redeeming ourselves. Well, I did key his car, so I guess I'll pay for the detail job to get it fixed. I redeemed myself. I feel better about it. But at the end of the day, the thing that made me key his car to begin with still lives in here. And getting the car detailed doesn't fix what's in here. Why even did it in the first place? But, but when Christ appeared, so no longer just talking about the outside, we're talking about the inside now. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is of this creation, he entered once. For all into the holy places. Once for all. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. You can do things that make you feel better about doing bad things, right? And oftentimes we do. Right things for the wrong reasons. We do good things for the wrong reasons. We don't do good things because they're intrinsically the good things. We do good things to pay penance. We do good things because people are watching. We do good things so someone will throw us a parade. We'll do good things so that someone will give us a write-off on our taxes. We do good things for a number of things, but rarely do we do good things because they're intrinsically good. It's rare. Not only that, we're pretty good at just doing bad things. And we're pretty good at just not doing anything. We're pretty good at looking out the window and being like, that is messy and scary, and I bet my neighbors will call the police. We draw the shades and keep going. You know, there's, there's need out there, but someone's on it, right? Somebody started a something that'll do with that thing. I heard about it on NPR. It's a great thing. Someone's taking care of it. Moving on sins of omission and of commission and of religion. But he comes by his blood and secures for you and I eternal redemption. He pays the price for our sins. He pays the price for all our right things for the wrong reasons. And he pays the price for all our rebellion. And he pays the price for every time we take something he made and make it into a God, which is absurd when you actually look at it in hindsight. Isaiah You climb up a tree, you cut the limb down, you use some of the wood to make a fire, you make some of the wood to make an idol, and that is absurd. You spend all your life making things that will try and fill the gap in your life to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in the life that you live, and we get bored with them two weeks later. You put all your money away for the boat. Maybe not marlin fishing, I don't know. You save for decades, and then you finally get it. It's not the motor you want, or the waves are cold, or whatever the thing is. It turns out the item, the idea, the thing, the purpose, the meaning, it runs out and runs empty. This isn't just about that. By his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Yeah, you can change your hair, your clothes, your face but it won't last. You can redeem yourself from the wrong thing you did last week, but there's another thing coming right around the corner. The redemption he offers through his blood is an eternal redemption. You're called redeemed. It's good. It's finished. It's finished. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, outside stuff, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So if the outside stuff can do anything, and he's saying it did in the old covenant, it actually did something But if it did anything, if a bull's blood in the Old Covenant did anything, what does the blood of God himself who enters into human history to save you from himself as the high priest and the sacrifice who offers himself up for you, he dies so you can live condemned in your place he stood. How much greater and how much cleaner are you because of that blood? How clean are you when eternal, holy, right, just God pays the price to make you right and crushes the beef that you've made between God and yourself? How clean and how right are you as we speak right now? He's reminding them of what they have. This is what you have. If you're a Christian, this is what you have right now because there is a Redeemer. His name is Jesus. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. The old thing's over. The new thing is here. So, then, so that those who call may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Again, he's coming back to this uh, eternal word. Forever. You have a forever inheritance. Your forever inheritance is Jesus. Because the marlin boat will be at the bottom of the ocean at some point in time. You might work at a company and you think this is the job and everyone thinks I'm important and look at me up here and in 100 years, your company is gone and forgotten. And so are you for that matter. And by the way, we live in Seattle. I'm not doom saying. I'm saying next year your company might be gone and forgotten. Right? Here today, gone tomorrow. It's dust, man. We're chasing dust. Yeah, you go into Hot Topic, you spend your life savings, you come out as the perfect goth, and next week it turns out Robert Smith no longer is a goth, and he takes off the makeup and he starts singing folk songs. Now, what are you going to do? And it was, sorry, the guy from The Cure stops being a goth, and then everything is right in the world. One guy got that, and that was my fault. But it's fleeting. It's fleeting. It's that fleeting, right? Because you have no idea what I'm talking about. Because I'm a guy who drives minivans and listens to Bruce Springsteen fleeting. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, it's over. For when a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. This is the basics of case law, by the way. If someone has a will and you're in it, you don't get the stuff out of the will until they're not alive anymore, right? Uh, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not uh, in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he's talking about they get redeemed by God. He redeems them from the hegemonic superpower Egypt. In their weakness, they get saved by his might. Uh, he takes them out into the wilderness. He lays out what it looks like. He saves them first, which is amazing. And then he says, I will be your God and you will be my people if you walk in my ways. He lays out what it looks like for them. Uh, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sparkled the blood, uh, the book itself. And this is about by the way, is why people don't preach Hebrews for the record. But the Old Testament is awesome. You just got to unpack it a little bit. Uh, the, book, uh, the book itself, says so that's the, the Torah, the, what he wrote down, and all the people saying, uh, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood on both the tent and the vessels of worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he consecrates it all. He sets it apart. He makes it holy. He consecrates it. He sets it apart. He makes it holy. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because God is just, right, and perfect. Um, Oftentimes, the idea of sin makes us uncomfortable. And honestly, the idea of justice makes us uncomfortable. We don't like the idea. And and he's like, well, what what did that guy really do? Uh, Why do you got to be the cosmic killjoy and get after that thing that that guy did? And what's interesting is when you talk to different people, where the, that thing that should just be overlooked, where that is on a sliding scale somewhere, and eventually you'll get to the point where, no, no, that should be punished. No, that victimization of that victim should be punished. That, that should get dealt with. God should deal with, deal with that guy. Yeah, get after him. Not after me. No, 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 no. Uh, you know what I'm doing? We're just having a good time, man. We're just, you know, I'm, I'm hurting too many people or whatever, right? It slides on the scale. And I know I've said this one before, but I'll say it again. Uh, you're driving down the highway. You're going too fast because you're listening to Smokey and the Bandit. And you're driving, listening to your Jerry Reed tape. And you're, does anyone even listen to tape? I have a van that has a tape, by the way. I have a tape deck in my van right now, so that's where I'm at. So you're driving down the, the highway listening to it to, to in your van, and, and it's blasting, and uh, you go right by a stator, and what do, you, what do you do? You say, Jesus, Lord God, uh, please forgive me for my sins of speeding, and if I don't get this ticket and it screws up my insurance, I promise, Lord, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I'll never, ever, ever speed again, and you go by, and he's drinking his coffee or looking the other way, and you get by, and say, thank you, Jesus, that was awesome, thank you for your mercy and your grace, and somebody else driving your same minivan doing the same thing you are, you say to yourself, where is a cop when you need one? We like mercy for us and justice for others. That's the deal. The beautiful thing about God is he's perfectly just. He doesn't let some people go and other people not. He doesn't let some injustices sit and others not. He deals with every injustice. He deals with every wrongdoing. Uh, Every person who has been victimized and the victimizer gets away, doesn't get away forever. And that's good news, by the way, that Jesus will deal with injustice. Now, the amazing thing about God, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Either Jesus Christ has dealt with your sins or you're going to have to, right? God in his grace and mercy and his infinite justice and infinite love stands in my place for my wrongdoing and drinks the cup that I deserve and he dies so I can live and this is the new covenant and there is a redeemer who does this. His name is Jesus. I deserve it. He got it. I didn't and I get to live. And that's the gospel and this is what you have in Jesus because he died 2,000 years ago once for all period. This is what you have if you are a Christian. You are forgiven. This is what God does and how he operates in the world. Therefore, he's the meet uh, up. Sorry. Will? No, there. 23. Thus it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ. This is what you have. Listen to what you have. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So these earthly things are representative of a bigger cosmic thing that God is doing in the universe now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You have an advocate in Jesus Christ now. You didn't earn it. He brought you into his family, and he's doing it, right? So yeah, I don't deserve to stand here. I don't deserve anything I have. I don't deserve life. I don't deserve breath. I don't deserve an eternal inheritance. I don't deserve any of it. And yet Jesus Christ, knowing I don't deserve any of it, goes to God the Father on my behalf and says, I dealt with that for that schmuck. He's mine. And God says, that's right. That's what I sent you to do. That's my boy. Given sinners, life. Given people who turn to Jesus, life. Because there's a redeemer. His name is Jesus. And this is what you have. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters in the holy, priest, uh, holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. If the arrangement was not that it's paid in full and dealt with. Let I me mean, just look at my life, right? Right? In my minivan, doing whatever I'm doing in my minivan, right? It's not like, oh, he broke the law by speeding. I guess I got to go dip out a pint of blood. It's that he shed his blood once. What does that actually mean in your life? If you think about the consequence of that reality in your life, it means that when he saved you, he saved you fully. That it's not, oh, I'm going to save that guy. Hoping he doesn't screw up again, and then, you know, if he does, I got to go to the cross again because it turns out human beings are pretty good at making pretend gods and sinning and throwing parades for themselves for doing right things and ignoring right things they're supposed to do in the universe. It's once and for all paid in full. It's profound. The reality of the cross is profound. One of my favorite preachers of all time, who my third son has his middle name, Spurgeon, from my wife would not permit me to name him first name Spurgeon Asa Spurgeon. Pack said that on the cross, beautiful little book, you can get seven of his sermons, just Jesus' words from the cross, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, said that Jesus on the cross is like herbs in a mortal mortar and pestle. And if you ever cook, you take your basil and you put it in the mortar and pestle, and it looks nice when you put it in, and it looks horrible after you've. Moved it around, but man, does your kitchen smell nice, right? The smells come out. He said, this is like what Jesus is. They took the Galilean peasant preacher and they put him on the cross. And like the mortar and pestle, what became clearer and clearer and clearer as he died, as the aroma of his divinity came out, as he says things from the cross like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is our Savior, As we are murdering him, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And his last words, it is finished. You can wake up tomorrow morning and you remind yourself, it is finished before you can get up out of bed. When you go to bed, you look at your thoughts and life and what you did today or what you didn't do lay your head down on that pillow and you remember it is finished. And that's what you have in Jesus. And that is for his glory. Because when God is that God in our lives, he looks really big and really merciful and really gracious and that's what he is. We get to taste just for a second the endless capacity of God himself for mercy and kindness and grace and goodness and beauty. And that is the point of your life, by the way. To taste and see that he is good and point to him and say, that is worthy of glory. That is beauty. That is the Christian life. But, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We are in the end of the ages 2,000 years, those are some long ages. Jesus, uh, we are living in the time between his first arrival, his second arrival, and these are what the Bible called the last days, the end of ages. And you say, well, that's, that's kind of a lot of ages. You now, Peter also tells us don't count them slow. A day to God, he begins to unpack that for us. God's at work, he's working, he's winding the thing down. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after this comes judgment, you and I will die unless he returns before then. and then you can read first Thessalonians afternoon this afternoon and tell me exactly how that works out, um, but it's there. I could too, but First Thessalonians is really good, I don 't know. Read it. If you and I are alive when he returns This will work out a little differently from us but for the average human being in the course of history is appointed for a man to die once and then judgment to stand before God and give an account and a reckoning for all the things we've done and you and I don't have to stand there and say we're worthy of standing there you and I as Christians stand there and say yep schmuck yep right things wrong reasons wiling out rebellion Things I should have done, things I shouldn't have done, things I didn't do that I should have done. Why do I get in the kingdom of heaven? Not because of anything this guy's done, but everything Jesus has done. I stand with a rock-solid promise that I don't stand there trying to be like, well, you know, uh, Tuesday was a rough day, but Wednesday was pretty good. I did my composting and, you know, stuff. Holy, right, all-powerful, almighty God of the universe. Weak, empty-handed. One name, Jesus. So, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to save those, those who are eagerly waiting for him. What does he mean by this? Because he's not what I don't believe he's saying here from anything else he says in the text, things like it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. Uh, he's not saying that he's, there's a lot of things that he's going to do at the return. He's going to clear his name. He was murdered as a liar and as a lunatic. He is coming back to clear his name and it will be awesome. He's coming back to deal with, unrighteousness and bloodshed and rebellion and idolatry. He's coming back to deal with all of that, but that's not the scope of what he's talking about here. He came once to deal with sin. If you're a Christian, your sin's been dealt with. That's what you have. You have life. And if all you have is that your sin's been dealt with, and it's just kind of, you're a bunch of dirty sinners, now let's get up and sing. That is not the whole gospel. The whole gospel is He has paid the price for your sins, and he's given you life. He's given you the spirit. He's given you everything in himself and in his son, Jesus. That is the gospel. Not just what you've been saved from, Satan, sin, death, and hell, but what you have been saved to, Jesus, 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 and all the wonderful benefits of being his child. But the number one thing is that we get God out of the deal. Okay? Okay? So he's dealt with sin, but coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You will be fully saved if you are a Christian. Fully redeemed. Every tear, every eye, to sin no more and to live your life. I mean, can you imagine? No more short fuses. No, no more... No more having that feeling like, don't do it again, don't do it again, don't do it again, don't, no, oh, there there it goes. It's over. And all you have is him. That you will never have that feeling again. I'm eager for that day. Fully safe. The question I have as I, as I come to this, I have, I have to ask myself then: If am I eager for His return? And I think we need to be careful here, because sometimes people get so lost in the realm of what's called theologically eschatology or end times things or these left behind books or uh, thief in the night or whatever it was before thief in the night. You know, we can get lost in the the happenings and the detail and the mark of this and that other thing. We get get lost out in there. And when I hear people that get lost out in there, I don't actually hear them that eager for Jesus' return. I hear a lot about signs and what the Soviets are up to or whatever. (laughs) But I don't hear a lot of people saying, here's the truth. Jesus came once to save sinners. And he's coming back put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And that is what I live on. So my question is not whether you're ready to go out and, you know, figure out what the Soviets are up to. My question is, are you eager for his return? Do you actually want to be redeemed? Or are you pretty happy driving around in the cul-de-sac that you're driving around in again and again? Do do you actually want to take everything that he's given you by the horns and live? He's he's given you everything. A a, a great way to even assess. Are you excited for his return? How do I even assess something like that? Have you ever had the phrase or sentiment, you know, I'm really excited for when Jesus comes back, but it'd be really cool if I could see my kids graduate college. I'm excited to see my kids graduate college. I'm really excited for Jesus' return, but I hope it's not before the Seahawks win a Super Bowl. Check. <laughs> you gotta check. It's a pretty quick, ferret it out. Right? There's something going on in there if that's our actual sentiment, if that's our actual heart. That we would say, I'm ready to have every tear wiped from my eyes. But if we could wait till Monday, that would be cool. If we could tell after the parade, that would be even better. And so here's what I would like to do. Woo! Here's what I would like to do. I don't know. It's just like a, you should be around my house. I clap all the time, and I have this crisp, loud clap, and I pretend like I'm James Brown and woo all the time, and it's hard for my wife, and my kids are copying me. And I don't know why I wooed at the mic popping at me, but here we go. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to ask, because there is a Redeemer and his name is Jesus, and if you're a Christian, he's yours right now. And the point of all this is not to to even pass on to you new information, but to remind you what you actually already have through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And so I say this, what I don't want us to do here, I'll, I'll preface this. This, this next thing we're, that I'm, where we're going is this is not for you to go to your room and think about what you've done, okay? I'm, the things I'm about to say, I'm not saying these things so that you feel guilty and bad and try harder. I want you to know what you have in Jesus and take assessment of your own life, prayerfully assess your own life, and ask if you understand what you have in him. And if you don't understand what you have in him, I want you to look at it right in the face and say, this is what I have. And the hope here has not been that we have a really downer, like back-end worship set. The idea is that you would see what you actually have in him, do what you got to do to get right with him, and then we'd stand up and we'd sing and we'd rejoice and we'd respond. That's my preface. So we're not going to our rooms to think about what we've done. We're going to look at what we have in Jesus and hopefully celebrate. I would like us to ask ourselves or ask yourself the question are you eager? Are you eager to see him face to face? Are you eager to have the new heavens and the new earth and taste and see is good and have the veil removed or are you just as happy driving in the Xbox cul-de-sac of your life? The static of the day-to-day is fine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says this. Starting in verse 8, 9. For they themselves report concerning us. That's the churches in the region around Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a little church that Paul's planted. And he's saying the gospel goes forth from this little community into the surrounding regions. And he begins to pinpoint why the good news of Jesus is sounding forth from these people. Uh, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you... And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. What sets the church in Thessalonica apart? They stop taking the things that God made and making their life and purpose and point out of those things. They turn from those things. They turn to Jesus. They're rejoicing in Jesus. They're rejoicing in the truth about Jesus. And they're eagerly awaiting to be completely restored by Jesus. And it's, it's, it's in the soup of their community. It's in the flavor of their community. It's, itch, it's etched in their lives that they say, those guys keep turning to Jesus and keep waiting for him to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And that's what the surrounding regions are saying. Jesus is more valuable to them than anything else. And so they're eager for his return. Because they have a redeemer, and they know what they have. Do you rejoice God is not a God to simply to to know things about. You don't just know his stats, his attributes. You know those attributes and you worship and you rejoice that that's the God you know because of Jesus. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Paul, who mind mind you is in a Roman prison, which is horrible, says in Philippians 4 verse 4, and this is in the imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness let be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're rejoicing in Jesus more than your job or more than success or more than money or more than you have a house or more than you don't have a house, you have an apartment you're rejoicing in those things, that's your security, that's home, that's comfort for you, your heart is going to wander and sway. But if the thing you're rejoicing in day in and day out, that you are his and he is yours and he abides in you and you in him and if you abide in him, then you abide in the Father and you have this life with God because of Jesus, that that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. You get out of bed in the morning because you get to know Jesus more. Paul has this kind of weird conversation with himself in Philippians, uh, whether life or death. I, I don't know which one I'll choose. Paul doesn't actually get to choose, by the way. It's hyperbole. But he says, if I get to stay here, I get to tell people about Jesus. I get to people grow in Jesus, and I get to know more here. But if I die and I get to, home, get to go home and be with him, then I just get to die and go home and be with him. Because I think I'll stay here in this Roman prison, singing the excellencies of his praise, rejoicing in him. Are you rejoicing in what you have because it's what you have. Uh, are you responding? Are you living out what you have? First uh, Timothy chapter one verse twelve says this: "I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service." Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul, if you don't know Paul's story, Paul hated Jesus, hated the church, and made the business of helping people kill Christians. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The outflow of Jesus, grace, and mercy becomes the outflow of our own lives like a cup that is overflowing because the love, you don't understand. I mean, you don't understand. You only get a piece of how much he loves you. You only get a piece of how glorious he is. You only get a piece of how merciful he is. Because you can look back on your life and be merciful, 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 but he remembers the 15 other things you don't even remember that he's being merciful for you. Towards you in. He goes on. These are some of my favorite verses. The saying is trustworthy, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And everybody who reads that says, Oh, yeah, Paul? He says, Church folk, Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. But I receive mercy for this reason that in the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Saving sinners to life. Don't forget it, it's two parts sinners to life. Your sinner has been given life. Life, 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 life. To live, to rejoice, to be enjoying Jesus. Uh, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How does Paul respond to all this? To honor and glory, to be God forever and ever. Amen. Do you look at your life and say, to honor and glory, to be God forever and ever? When you're doing wrong, do you say, you know what? Please forgive me. That was wrong. I'm going to own this completely. Jesus has paid the price for that sin so I can actually say sorry to you please forgive me for that or he's blame shifting no 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 that wasn't that wasn't my fault that was that guy's fault because that guy irritated me that's why I yelled at you that's why I did that other thing because that other guy did that other thing or just own it because guess what you're forgiven I can own my sin because it's forgiven and dealt with in Jesus Christ are you responding and finally are you sharing What you have. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Sounds like it's something you have. You have it, you have the good news of the gospel, you have Jesus. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise that you should take to the bank. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You have that. We live in a shameful world. You will not be shamed in the kingdom of God if you're in Christ. A shaming word. Not shameful. I should have said shaming world there. For there is no distinction between all right, Yeah. Uh, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? See how he's relating this idea? This is what you have, this is the salvation you have, to the sharing of the salvation. How then will they call on whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You are carriers of a message. You have it. It's inside of you if you are a Christian. You have appropriated it if you are his. If this is the thing that is etched on your life, my hope is that you don't just talk about the gospel with Christians. My hope, if this is what you have, it's something you also give away. Timothy, what I gave to you, give to faithful men who will give it to faithful men. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Teach you to obey all that I have commanded you. Baptize in the, name of the Father and the Son. All those guys out there, they don't have nothing. But you've got to go give it to them. Can't give what you don't got, as my teacher from the Bronx used to say. Because here's the deal. Um, if you're not a Christian, you know as well as I do, whatever you're chasing is not going to satisfy. Because if you're honest with your life, as I've had to be with my own, I've chased a lot of things. I've only ever met one thing that satisfied. I only ever met one thing that fulfilled in His name is Jesus. And if we're being honest as the church, you know as well as I do, is we chase a lot of other things than Jesus. But none of those make us whole. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to know Him today. I want you to love Him today. And I want you to have what we have because we have Him. I want you to live for His glory. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You can become His now. And if you are a Christian, Let's be honest about where we're at. Are you rejoicing? Do you have joy? Is this what gets you up in the morning? And if not, why not? Because it's what you already have. It is fully available to you now. So again, I'm going to say it one more time. This isn't I'm going to go to my room and feel bad that I haven't rejoiced in it. It's appropriate. You have it. So let's sing. Let's rejoice. Let's take it. Let's run with it. Let's go. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. You are mighty to save, Lord. Goodness gracious. You are almighty to run down and ferret out every one of our things that is a joy other than you. I pray for all the things that we have, that we take all the good things that we're making, ultimate things, and we just turn them into things that you own and that we use to point us back to how good you are because you gave them to us all. You've given us our jobs. You've given us our homes. You've given us our families. May we enjoy them to your glory. And we remember every day that you gave them to us. Help us to be slow to forget what you've redeemed us from, are redeeming us from. Let us be slow to try and play redeemer in our lives and the lives of others. Let us be quick to come to you in our need empty-handed for your help. Help us, God, that your word would be near to our hearts and that that it would be what comes first out of our mouths. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us life and joy and everything and yourself. I pray tomorrow that the reason Anchor Church would get out of bed tomorrow is that you're seated on the throne. You're mighty to save. You've given us joy, and you've given us life. We love you, Jesus. Amen.